Good morning. Uh, will you pray with me? Father God, we rejoice this morning for your goodness and your mercy. We rejoice because you're a gracious, loving God. We rejoice because you've saved us and you've brought us into life. Father, I pray that you would be glorified by the words that are spoken here this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we could sing your praises, that you are a good and worthy God. Thank you, Father, for this day that we have to come to worship you and to be together. By your spirit, be with us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, we have a special week. On Wednesday and Thursday, we have our annual Kuiper Lectures. Uh, Dr. James Skillen is going to be with us. Uh, it should be pretty fantastic. Uh, Friday is Campus Preview. Uh, but today we have the first of, of the two, what are really, I think, um, maybe my favorite chapels of the year. We have our first senior testimonies today. Um, yeah. And it, it is my privilege to introduce our first speaker. He is a varsity basketball and baseball player. Um, he is someone who, he's a man who, who loves thoughts and words. He's a man of conviction and integrity, and he's a man who's deeply respected by this community. Please give a warm Scots welcome to Zia Rima. Hey, oh, okay. Um, what's up? So, here goes nothing. Uh, if it's really bad, it's because I wrote it last night. <laughs> uh, okay. For the last three years, I've heard some really smart people say some really cool things for their senior testimonies. B. Bracken spoke about stress and perfectionism. Danny Lloyd did that crazy thing with, with all the props and the confetti. Uh, if you remember that. Wilson Ricketts addressed the need for mourning. Um, I'm not going to do any of those things. And I'm... Oh. And if I say anything that is as memorable as what they said, then that's a major victory in my mind. Today I don't want to give a mini-sermon type of talk, which is a direction that a lot of people have gone for their senior testimonies. Instead, I'm going to talk about me. I hope that's cool with you. Here's the basic outline for my talk. If you're a note taker, prime your pens. I'm going to be super self-centered. That's how I live my life. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about me, then about how I hated you, and then after that, finally, how I came to realize that Jesus Christ was maybe not a bad idea after all, largely because of you. Um, when I got to Covenant, I hated all of you. I already said that. But really, truly, I did. I only talked to one guy on campus for the first month of school. His name is Justin Jantamasso. He's over there. My then roommate and forever soulmate. Sorry, Sarah Beth. Uh, <laughs> we did everything together. Uh, we would hide from our RA, Joel Friesen, and anybody else that was trying to reach out to us. It was a grand old time. Just me and Justin resisting the pull from O-Team, from Hall Life, from Covenant College. And for me, frankly, I was resisting a pull from God. You see, this was my mentality. I got to Covenant, and I was thinking, I ain't come to play school. I just want a ball. Well, that's not entirely true, because my dad is full Japanese man, and with that comes major pressure to succeed with school. Uh, so I was here for sports in school. 
Uh, I lied a little bit. And that much was clear. I wasn't here to make friends or go on mysterious hall dates with girls I had never met before and didn't care about. And I absolutely was not here because in all things Christ was preeminent in my heart. I was here for me. Uh, here's a little story that kind of shows what I was thinking. I remember when I flew out for scholarship weekend as a senior in high school, and they required us to bring a paper we had written that talked about a philosophy of integrating God and our discipline of choice. At the time, I was sure that I wanted to be a physics major. <laughs> And I wrote a couple pages that essentially said, integrating faith and learning is a really bad idea. I sat across from Dr. Broussard and told him that faith and learning should be in two entirely different spheres. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I said, two entirely different spheres. <laughs> and somehow, I was really pissed when I didn't get the scholarships that I wanted. <laughs> I, I promise my interviewing skills have improved since then. I'm aware that context is important. Obviously, I didn't do my research before I said those things. All I had to do was look on the website and see the school motto, then Google preeminent. <laughs> now, when I said I want to talk about me, what I was really saying is, I want to talk to you today about how I changed from being so anti-covenant and anti-God, and, and what I mean by what changed me. What changed me is Christ working through all of you. Covenant used to do a faculty chapel series that was titled, This I Believe. I don't work here, but I've gone here long enough that, for today, I bestow upon myself the title of honorary professor, and I'm going to add on to that faculty series. <laughs> my This I Believe is, I believe Christ made himself evident through my community. I play sports. I already mentioned that. Uh, yeah. Anybody that takes their craft seriously watches YouTube videos of professional players. It's just what you do. Julian Amarelli, my current roommate for the last two years, has spent countless hours worshiping the biracial angel and former New York Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter. <laughs> Julian curls up in a ball under his sheets every night and just ogles over the way Jeter effortlessly fields ground balls and swings the bat. In the same way, I've been watching you. I came here without a clue what a relationship with Jesus was and without a clue as to how to be a Christian. Because I've been watching you, I've learned so many things. God works through his people. I want to make it very clear that what we do in everyday life matters. They matter to people like me who needed to see how it was done before I could believe it and do it for myself. Today I want to tell you who I learned some of these things from and what it was I learned. Joel Friesen taught me the value of pursuit that there is life in community, and that there is joy in being found by others. Because there is joy in being found by a God that cares about you personally. Joel was the one who first poked his head into my room, and Justin's room. And when he was met with my coldest shoulder, came back again and again and again. Thank you, Joel. I'll never forget you coming after me, though I was unwilling. You modeled Christ all year in that way. Will Cleland taught me the value in pursuing righteousness. Though he was always quick to extend grace and remind that all have fallen short, Will was constantly challenging me, unafraid of being the iron that sharpens iron. Will even got me to stop cussing. Briefly, though, I will admit. <laughs> <coughs> I haven't seen him in a while, and that habit has once again blossomed. <laughs> Tyler Brodigam showed me a steadfast love. 
I always describe him as the most steady and most consistent man that has ever walked beside me. I love him for his ability to walk out onto water, even in the midst of a storm. Tyler showed me that there is incredible power to be found in simple faith. Coach Artie Culver, oh man, taught me that Christians aren't characterized by glib happiness. Jesus Christ didn't live his life like the positive and encouraging Caleb radio station. He had a greater understanding of the realities of pain and suffering. Christians don't have to be happy or have the niceness of a retail grin during Christmas time, but they are kind and they are gentle. Sometimes the kindest thing you can do to someone is remind them that they are sinners. It's not very nice. It's not very K-love. Abby Whistler taught me about connections. <laughs> While that's true, that's not actually what I wanted to talk about with Abby. Abby taught me about the importance of being vulnerable, opening up to people, exposing your pain and weaknesses, and being real about the sin in your life is a daily necessity. If you're not doing that, being honest about your own shortcomings, you're living a prideful life. It's okay to fall. You're not fooling anyone. Thanks for that reminder That's it, that it's okay to fall, and it's okay to tell you I did. Marianne Venable has taught me that questioning God is natural, is okay. There's something that we do when we hurt. But she's also taught me that faith can endure the drought, that our God is bigger than any pain we feel, than any heartache, than any of our sorrows, than any cancer. I love you for that, Marianne. Taylor Bloy has taught me that Jesus Christ is supposed to be sought after every single day. Jesus Christ fills Taylor's mind. He's constantly evaluating his life, considering what does God want me to do? It's a beautiful reminder to be continually consumed by the things that are eternal, not the paper that is due next week or the sips that I haven't started yet. <laughs> There's something bigger, and every day Taylor sees that. Coach Doug Simons has taught me that it's not fun unless everyone is having fun. <laughs> this was a tough one, honestly. I love to have fun at your expense. Ask my friends. Ask my teammates. I can be one of the meanest, most pompous D-bags you've ever encountered. <laughs> But his voice in the back of my head is convicting. It's not fun unless everyone is having fun. <laughs> he created an environment where the golden rule was lived out on a daily basis and actually enforced. It's something that has shaped me greatly. Justin Jantamasso has taught me that Jesus is sweeter with a friend. If you'll recall, at the beginning of the talk, he was the one in, that was hiding away from campus with me. But he has also been the man that's gotten up at five in the morning and read the scriptures and meditated on those words with me. He's also been the man that has taken me home for Thanksgiving with his family to break bread. I can't go back out to Utah and be with my own, like I said, forever soulmate. So. Julian Amorelli. <sighs> You've taught me that real people eat whole blocks of mozzarella cheese plain. You have demonstrated about every sound of flatulence in existence. But you've also taught me seven times 70 about forgiveness. For all the times that I stabbed you in the back or told you a straight up lie, all you did was forgive. You were showing me what it looks like to forgive the way that we are forgiven. It's an absolute testament to your character and to your own relationship with Jesus. Sarah Beth. You've taught me about being humble, about what it looks like to understand your own brokenness so intimately that you know you need Jesus desperately every single day. You've taught me to know that I can't do it within my own power 
And instead of trying to man up and get it done at any cost, I can rely heavily on the Lord God who is an everlasting rock. I could go on forever. You might think I already have. But I'm going to end my list here and try to make this relevant. To those of you who are thinking, I don't know any of these people, and sick, this tool just wasted 10 minutes of my life talking about how he really likes all his friends. <laughs> Let me tie it all back to some truth for you. I want to talk to those of you who are questioning where you're at right now, are questioning if covenant is right for you, or this is where you're meant to be. I don't want to say that you need to be a covenant. I'm not God. I don't know your plan. Sometimes I don't care. However, I am challenging you to take a moment and introspect a little bit. Ask yourself if you have found real community at this place in your life. I spent a lot of time talking about people, but I want to make it clear that Christ is the one doing the shaping and transforming in my life, using these people as vehicles. Christ is using this community of believers for my good. Now, community has become a laughable word during my time here at, on this mountain. I've heard stories about professors getting pissed off and saying that Covenant's concept of community is dumb. Sometimes I agree with them. Not everybody is comfortable with being forced to live within the hall life system for three years and then finally move off campus for some breathing room. That's not community. But what is community? The type of biblical community that Hebrews talks about, where you're spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, is so important to living a healthy Christian life. It's so necessary for you to create a working relationship with God. You can't do it in isolation. Finding Jesus for yourself is so frequently letting someone else just show you Jesus from their own perspective and then going, huh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I appeal to you, freshman who's really thinking about transferring to a community college closer to home, I appeal to you, junior who's disillusioned with covenant, make an effort, put yourself out there and try to find some people. Try to find some Christians in your life who aren't afraid to call you out on your BS and then let them mold you, make you a better version of yourself. Let God minister to you through them. If I hadn't run into that at Covenant College, I would still be lost. I would still be hiding from the world, thinking only about myself, not being able to see past the next day, week, year. I wouldn't have learned what it looks like to have Jesus in my life, what it feels like to be made whole, what it feels like to know that there's something past this life, something that is beautiful and right. Thanks for your time. Is this on? I don't have a mic. Okay. Sarah Grace Withers, affectionately known as Swithers by most of you, is my lifelong friend. Um, we've shared a hometown, sort of, a church, a college, a hall, two rooms, and now a house. Um, we've shared struggles, miscommunications, laughter, tears, and our faith. We've shared our lives together. But one thing we've never shared is a personality. <laughs> Swithers is singular in who she is. Her friends describe her as unparalleled in her ability to hold humor and wit alongside of depth and severity, selflessly sacrificial, always ready to give a well-reasoned answer for any question you can ask, uniquely able to delight anyone with her sarcastic humor, well-crafted stories and outlandish trivia. <laughs> Most importantly, she's someone who has pointed me and many of you towards Christ. So let's give a warm Scots welcome to Sarah Withers.
Um, today, my chapel talk, I guess, would be disappointment as doxological. So that means something to you. Cool. Um, starting out from Psalm 27, 13 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Disappointment has been a common theme throughout my life at Covenant. I don't have any super traumatic stories to tell you. Um, it's just been the repeatedly um, unmet desires that have weighed heavily on me. My response to this disappointment was just to expect less. Um, I needed to simply rein in my desires and I could effectively protect myself against the pain of disappointment. So I tried to just desire less indiscriminately um, from my circumstances, my friends, uh, and most tragically from God. I would venture to guess that I'm not alone in this. I think we do this all the time, right? We don't ask our fresh friends to hang out because we're afraid they'll say no and disappoint us. Or worse, um, we don't even dare to ask God for the things we really want because we're afraid he won't give it to us and that will reveal that either he doesn't really love us or that maybe he really isn't in control. My functional purpose in life was, and oftentimes still is, is to run from disappointment and the inevitable pain that it brings. And I hope that you either know intuitively or from experience that this is no way to live at all. It breeds apathy, cynicism, and despair. However, it wasn't until I read C.S. Lewis's definition of joy that I was able to see that in Christ, I am free to stop running from disappointment. He writes, it is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is felt more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. Here, it is a technical term and should be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. And this was radical to me, um, because instead of now running from my dissatisfaction, I should chase after it. In disappointment where I had previously only felt despair, now that was where I was invited to find joy. But alone, how could this make sense? The only way that disappointment can lead to joy is if we understand that our disappointment points us to a future of total and complete satisfaction. Lewis argues elsewhere that our continual disappointment in this world reveals that we are hardwired for another world of perfectly fulfilled desires. As Christians, we know that this hope and future we have is in heaven, God's kingdom coming down to earth, the renewal of all things. And as believers living in fairly comfortable circumstances, I don't think we allow ourselves to be disappointed enough and really desire heaven. It's not that we expect too much, but it's that we expect far, far too little. It is through the disappointment of this broken world that the sweetness of heaven becomes real. So I would encourage you, Covenant College, when you're disappointed for whatever reason, sit in the pain of disappointment. I'm sorry to tell you that heaven doesn't make the pain and disappointment of this world any less real, but it does make it purposeful as it points us to our future glory. Search out what's really disappointing you. What desire is at the root of the pain? And trust it to the Lord. Let him show you how he will restore to you the desires of your heart. Guys, there's no bad desire. Yes, there are misplaced desires and there are distorted desires, but even our most evil desires are rooted in a desire that can only be met in Christ. And when our misplaced and distorted desires build idols in our hearts, I would encourage you to let them disappoint you. Better, 
Ask God to show you how compared to the satisfaction provided in him, everything else is unsatisfactory. Then feast on the glimpses of his ultimate satisfaction. If we really understand that this world is not our home and that our hope and joy is in a future glory, then this becomes really polarizing and even radical. It forces us to reconcile with the fact that all the things of this world will pass away and disappoint us. We are called in 1 John 2 not to love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Not because God doesn't want us or doesn't love us or doesn't want us to be happy, but because he knows that we can never be truly joyful seeking satisfaction in this world. And for some, this total commitment of future glory for heaven may seem really overwhelming. And because of our lack of faith, it is. And I suspect that at the root of our fear of commitment is a fear that a better option will arise, or that the cost of worldly pleasure couldn't possibly be worth the commitment of heaven. However, the beauty of heaven is that there is no better option. It's not just an option for hope, it is the option for hope that was bought very costly for us. So, I challenge you friends to make heaven real in your life. Some practical ways of doing this are simply talking about heaven. Wonder what it will be like. A great place to start is from your deepest unmet desires. Right? I could list a generic list, um, but I don't know what desires are unmet that are hurting the most in your heart. But that's actually okay, because I don't have to. In fact, no person has to know or understand because Christ, our perfect friend, knows you and your pain and disappointment intimately. And he wants your desires to be fulfilled so much so that he, did die, he died to make that a reality. But not just in your disappointments, in the sweet blessings of this world, consider how much sweeter heaven will be. The Celtic Christians borrowed a concept of thin places where the veil between now and our future glory is particularly thin. In those thin places, ponder the fleeting glimpses with the vivid beauty of heaven and praise God. It also doesn't always have to be your deepest pains or your greatest joys that bring you to talk about heaven, but the little things too. Um, I once debated with my six-year-old nephew about whether or not there will be toys in heaven. Um, the jury is still out, although, let the record show, I think there will be. So, AJ, we'll see who's right. However, if any of you are like me, you might doubt the benefit of wondering about heaven. You might think, sure, we can talk about heaven, but the Bible doesn't say that much about it, and we can't really even be sure anyway, so what's the point? I suspect that many of us think about knowledge in purely propositional terms, all of the that clauses. And we can thank almost all of Western epistemology for that. Sorry, Dr. Davis, Dr. Wingard. <laughs> um, but I do think that knowledge includes facts. I also believe that knowledge is much more than just knowing things. In the Bible, knowledge is relational too. And while I have rarely come out of conversations about heaven knowing more propositional knowledge, it is in those conversations that I have met the goodness of God. And even as I try now to live out my advice, but ultimately God's advice when he says, set your mind on things above in Colossians 3, I have a certain skepticism about heaven. Partially in moments of severe doubt about the reality of heaven, which still persists today, even now. <laughs> but also because heaven is a concept that feels deeply selfish to me. I am so selfish that I have a hard time thinking about my desires being met in heaven as anything but selfish. So Z, I guess we're not that different. <laughs> um, which is, that's just absurd, right? Um, but I think, if you think about it, it does make a little bit of sense. 
right? We're told not to think about God as just a dispenser of our blessings, um, but going to heaven seems like just hitting the jackpot on getting all of our desires met. So what's the difference? And I think this is key. It is not just that all of our desires will be met perfectly in heaven. It is that God himself is the fulfillment of all of our desires. We were, not, we were made to desire God, not just the blessings that flow from him. I cannot stress that enough. In heaven, we will be restored to experience the sheer joy of being perfectly fulfilled by merely being in the presence of our Father and Creator. That's the beauty of Psalm 27. Hear it again. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. The hope is not that there will just be perfect justice, truth, and joy in heaven, but that in heaven we will be in perfect communion with our Lord who is justice, truth, and joy. Consequently, desiring heaven is the least selfish thing we can do because it is only in heaven that we will fully, selflessly be worshiping our King through eternity by literally existing in our glorified state, which also happens to hold unimaginable joy for us. So again, in your moments of disappointment, when you are tempted to hide from God in your sin, taste and see that it is he who is good and run into his everlasting arms by the power of the Holy Spirit. In light of everything I've just said, I think it's legitimate to ask why God is letting us continue to be steeped in pain and disappointment instead of just being in heaven right now, right? Like if it's so good, get me there, you know? Um, First off, I want to encourage you that this is actually a great place to be. But I also want to challenge you as I have been challenged. As we are in the already but not yet, not only do we experience the pain of the fall, but we also continue daily to sin against God. So then I think the question changes to, God, why are you keeping me on this fallen earth knowing that I'm going to keep sinning against you? Right? Yes, Christ did die for our sin, but that doesn't make our sin any less costly. So why, God? Why do you let us continue to suffer knowing that we will continue to add defense for your son to have to pay for? Simply, because in his infinitely wise and good plan, God deemed all the pain and offense worth bringing his kingdom here. A common theme throughout Appalachian gospel music is the future reality of a promised heaven. Largely because their life was plagued with difficulty, they were better able to see that their only true hope was in one to come. However, one song stood out to me among the songs eagerly anticipating heaven, and that was the song, Wait a Little Longer, Please Jesus. And here's part of the lyrics. Here the labor is so hard, and the workers are so tired, and our weary hearts are yearning for a rest. And we find we're getting anxious to be in that happy home where we'll receive such peace and happiness. Wait a little longer, please Jesus, there are so many wandering out in sin. Just a little longer, please, Jesus, one more day to let our loved ones in. We may look into the skies, and tear will fill our eyes, for our burdened hearts grow heavier with each day. First we cry, O Lord, please come, come take your children home. But then we look around us and we say, wait a little longer, please, Jesus. The family's scattered here and there, but Lord, we love them dear. And maybe we can help them find a way. And if waiting is the cost that our loved ones might not be lost, Lord, that's the only reason why we say, wait a little longer, please, Jesus. So we are here now because there's still God's people out there who are not yet saved from hell. And we cannot talk about heaven without hell. In fact, 
Hell is officially the least talked about topic in the church, followed closely by sex. That was a joke, y'all can laugh, okay. I rehearsed that so many times, but it's fine. <laughs> but seriously, we cannot understand the beauty of the blood of the cross if we do not understand what it saved us from. Far too often, we leave the gospel as God saving us from sin, which is true. But it's not just sin, but the cost of sin, which is eternal existence in death and destruction. It is because hell is real that we are still here on earth. Because God, out of his goodness and divine wisdom, is using us to bring his kingdom here, which includes his continual work in sanctifying us and using us to bring the news of salvation to all. That is what it means to live as Christ and yet truly believe that dying is gain. Covenant, this is vital. Because it not only gives us purpose in our suffering and disappointment, but our whole existence until glory. And we are promised that if we are in Christ, our kingdom work is not in vain, and friends, we have a lot of work to do. If you are seeking ultimate satisfaction in anything other than in God himself, my prayer is that you will be deeply unsatisfied. Because not only will the disappointments of this world be stripped of purpose, but you will justly experience eternity of unimaginable pain and disappointment in hell. So because of that truth, I pray the words of Augustine that you will not rest until you rest in God. However, if you are covered in the grace of God through the blood of Christ, as surely as Jesus rose from the dead in real history, so we also will be into eternal paradise. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We can praise God amidst our deepest disappointments because we are promised eternity in communion with him. Therefore, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we believe. Help us with our unbelief. In Christ's name, amen.